couple of things that I've found for success. One would be um, pick people that can grow with you. So, you know, I kind of used this strategy when I was finding everybody that I now work with and is on my team. Welcome to Teach Me Real Estate Investing, a show where I share my personal journey and the challenges I face as an investor. I invite industry experts to share their wisdom and advice to help me overcome these adversities with the hope that it'll help you on your own personal journey. I'm your host, Sogad Ghimire, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to another episode. Today, we're lucky to be speaking with Dominique Gunderson, and we're going to be talking about long distance investing. So Dominique, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, awesome. Before we get started, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started in real estate investing. Absolutely. Um, I have been in real estate investing since I was 17. Uh, It's kind of all I've ever done since I graduated high school. Um, But essentially, I got interested in investing in real estate when I was in high school, around 15 years old, and kind of knew that was the path I wanted to take instead of going to college or the more traditional route. Um, So I graduated at 17 and started my first couple years just working for an agent uh, that was local to the Los Angeles area where I lived. And he was also an investor. He did a lot of higher end fix and flip deals. So kind of got to learn just the basics of sales and, you know, contracts, just real estate in general, um, and as well as a little bit of the investing side. Um, So I did that for almost two years. And then I jumped in full time to investing. Um, I started with wholesaling and I did that for about a year and a half, uh, still in Los Angeles. And once I had done probably 40 or so deals um, in that year and a half and had just a lot of experience under my belt, I decided to branch out and start my own investing company, uh, which I started at 21. And that is when I started doing what I do today, which is uh, main focus on fixing and flipping out of state. I now live in Colorado and I invest full time in the New Orleans, Louisiana market. Wow, that's that's incredible. That's a lot. Right. Uh, And I feel like I could talk the entire podcast about your experience but uh you mentioned you first started as an agent was there an influence that decided that made you decide that you wanted to go into real estate like friend or family that like you know maybe influenced you in that direction or was yeah i'm just curious because not a lot of people think that hey i'm going to graduate high school and i'm going to be a real estate agent so i'm just curious how that how you ended up there yeah, um, not a direct influence. No one in my family is in the business or anything, but I did just get introduced to the idea. Um, when I was in high school, my mom was in the process of buying her first property uh, just to live in, just a primary residence, but um, it was a short sale. So it was kind of like a fixer upper, um, you know, discounted type of property. And so that was my very first um, just introduction to even the idea of renovating a property, buying something at a discount, what real estate was before that I I had no idea. So that was what really piqued my interest. And then the further I dug into it, I just knew that's what I wanted to do. 
Yeah, that's incredible. I feel, I feel uh, especially at that young of an age, a lot of people are still, you know, figuring out what they want to do. But it sounded like you, you kind of, you know, maybe got lucky and found your passion early on. But um, uh, I think that's great. So you became an agent, you worked as an agent, and then you got into wholesaling. Why did you decide to start with wholesaling? Wholesaling, um, I was introduced to the idea pretty early on in my real estate career, and I didn't, I, I didn't really think it was what I wanted to do. I mean, ultimately, I wanted to, you know, own rentals and fix and flip. That was always kind of my dream from the start. But wholesaling was a great way where I could have no risk involved. I was not actually going to be the one purchasing the deal. And I could also just save and build capital because I knew I was going to need either some outside investors or my own capital to really get started with what I actually wanted to do in investing. Um, and because I was so young, I thought it's probably going to be a little difficult to find people who are going to trust me with mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it might be easier if I start with my own capital. So wholesaling was really just that route for me to save up. Um, a lot of money from all of the wholesale fees I had made um, and to just get that transactional experience working with investors, working with sellers, getting these fix and flip deals under contract and picking in the investors brains that I was selling to just to understand rehab values and how to run comps and all these things that go into actually owning investment properties so that you know, a year and a half later from when I started, I, I felt like I had really learned all of that stuff firsthand. Yeah. You mentioned you did about 40 wholesale deals in that year and a half, right? Which is quite a large amount of volume uh, for someone who, you know, got started quite young, start, started, uh, you know, you were only an agent for a little while, then you got into wholesaling, and then you were able to do such a large amount of volume. What do you think helped you get to, you know, that success? Yeah, yeah um, a couple things. One, I would say the main thing is I was just so driven. Like, I spent a lot of time, even when I was an agent, like, there was plenty of times where I was working like seven days a week, just chasing this dream, this goal. Um, you know, I wasn't, you know, spending a ton of time just like what your average college kid would do and, you know, wasting your time and money and stuff. So I was very focused and driven from the start, um, which just, you know, made me devote a lot of hours and focus to what I was doing. Um, but, Another thing that really helped me out is I joined a wholesaling team, if you will. Um, and it was very similar to if you were on like a real estate agents team where, you know, there's a bunch of agents all in an office and all chasing after the same goal of getting listings and selling houses. So you kind of get that, that um, office vibe of like, you know, just being able to pick each other's brains and work together on stuff. But at the same time, it's not like if somebody else in the office closes a deal that that helps you. It doesn't. Everybody's running their own race. So 
that was super helpful for me, just being able to be surrounded by a group of people who were all trying to close deals and wholesale stuff as well. Um, it just helped me learn really fast what to do and what not to do and how to pitch to sellers and how to network with buyers and, and all of the things. So that was really um, just an, for me personally, it was a really awesome way to kind of get started. Yeah, that's incredible. So you did wholesale for a year and a half and now you're fixing and flipping. Fast forward to today, could you tell us a little bit about uh, your investing strategy and maybe uh, your portfolio? I don't know if you only fix and flip or you also hold some of your properties as long-term rentals. Could you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Um, the last couple years, I have mainly just been focusing on fix and flip, um, again, to just build capital um, and also to get my team really, really strong because it is long distance. My team is everything. So I spent the last couple years, I started in New Orleans in 2019. Uh, so 2019, 2020, 2021 and 2022 have been main focus on building my team, getting things strong, building capital through fix and flip strategy. Um, Today, we, we usually run 10 plus rehabs at a time um, with the fix and flip stuff. So always buying, you know, a couple deals a month and just keeping the cycle going. Um, 2023 will be the first year where I actually start focusing more effort on the buy and holds, um, just using the profits that we've built up over the last couple of years to actually start reinvesting into longer term holds through multifamily buildings. Um, so this will be the first year where it's actually on my goals for the year to buy several multifamily buildings uh, to hold. Awesome. When you first got started, you know, you're an agent, wholesale, wholesaler, and then now you fix and flip. Um, what were, especially early on, I'm curious about, since most of our audience are newer investors, what were some of the challenges you faced uh, early on in your career and what did you do to overcome them? Probably the biggest challenge I faced really early on was my age um, mm -hmm. and just building trust with people because I was so young and I mean, frankly, unexperienced, you know, the first right. couple of deals I did, I, I really had no idea what I was doing. And everybody kind of has to go through that stage where it's just like trial and error and you're just figuring right. it out as you go. So I think that was the biggest hurdle for, for me is um, just gaining people's trust, uh, mm -hmm. whether it was, you know, sellers that I was working with, or when I went into wholesaling, like building up my buyers list and getting people who actually take meetings with me and, you know, trust that I could bring them value. Um, right. but I think the best way that I found to overcome that was to speak everything with confidence. Um, mm -hmm. even if I didn't necessarily know exactly what I was talking about, Right. Um, you know, it's never a problem to tell somebody that you're not a hundred percent sure. And I'll get back to you in an hour or whatever, right. and right. go ask for help. But as long as you hold yourself really well, mm -hmm. you speak confidently, um, you know, you're good on the phone, you're good in person, right. whatever. Right. Um, it, it really helps me to mm -hmm. just develop that trust with people when I, I really didn't have much experience. Right. Um, I think myself included and probably a lot of newer investors, something we struggle with 
uh, is mindset, right? There's a lot of, especially when you're starting off, there's a lot of self-doubt. You don't know if you're going to be successful. Um, and I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned you were really young, you're also a woman in the field. And so there's probably a lot of challenges that you had to go through. And some of them might be around your own mindset and your self-belief. Um, was there something that you did or something you went through that kind of helped you over those moments of self-doubt to get through those? It's a good question. Um, I hate to say it, but it's kind of like one of those things that I feel like I haven't struggled with a ton. Mm -hmm. Um, I just, since I was, you know, in high school and I kind of set my mind to knowing that this is what I was going to do for a living. Um, I was just set. I mean, I, nothing was going to stop me. And that's kind of just my personality and who I am. Um, if I set my mind to something, I'm going to do it. So there were definitely like a couple of people in my life, um, that spoke like doubt into me, um, or, you know, just said things like, you know, you're, you're wasting your time. You should really be going to college. You know, this is never going to work out and stuff like that. And so for me, um, those types of comments actually just fueled the fire in me even more, just make me want to prove people wrong. And mm-hmm. yeah, and yeah, same thing, you know, just being a young female, like that's not super common. So anyone that, you know, may think I couldn't have done it or, or wouldn't be as successful as someone else. It's so it's just driven me a lot to, to be able to, you know, prove the stereotype wrong or whatever and, right. and do what I set out to do. Yeah. That's awesome. So I want to dive into today's topic of long distance investing. Um, And I can't wait to talk about it because this is something I'm looking into right now. So I live in Seattle. The home prices here are quite high. uh, And I I found that, you know, as I analyze these homes, it tends to be really hard to cash flow, especially... um, yeah, in, in expensive markets like Seattle, but uh, it's not impossible, but you'd have to get creative. So the, one of the properties I own, I had I Airbnb because it's one of the few ways I could make it work. Um, and so um, I feel like it's much easier for me to look elsewhere out of state, especially, uh, especially when uh, home prices are lower and you can cash flow, then it, it's like, why not, right? Uh I'm curious before, you know, we continue through the topic, what was your reason for investing out of state? You mentioned you were wholesaling locally, but then once you were fixing and flipping, you started looking out of state. I'm curious, uh, what was the reason you decided to do that? Yeah, pretty much the same uh, answer that you just gave too. I I lived in Los Angeles and, you know, it was a good place to sell expensive properties and make nice wholesale fees. But, um, when it was my turn, it was just a highly competitive market. Um, just so many investors that were fixing and flipping there to go against that had way more experience than me. And the barrier to entry was really high. I mean, I, I would have had to, even with the cash I had saved up, get, you know, a hard money lender or private lender, someone involved just to help me with the purchase and, and renovation. So, um, yeah, all those reasons were mainly why I decided to look out of state, um, just find a market where I could just 
use only the cash that I had saved up to go ahead and do my first couple of deals and prove myself proof of concept before I started pitching out to, you know, getting partners or lenders involved. And so for me, um, New Orleans was where my dad lives. And so that was a pretty easy place for me to feel like I had someone I could ask questions to about neighborhoods and, you know, where to be and where not to be and to just go out and stay, you know, to visit the area and meet people. And so, um, yeah, picking somewhere with low barrier to entry, less competition. And I knew someone on the ground and that's how I chose New Orleans. Yeah. Awesome. I think, uh, investing out of state, it, it sounds appealing to most people because of these reasons, but it comes with its own challenges as well. Uh, what are some things that people should be aware of before they decide that they want to invest out of state? Um, I think the biggest thing is just knowing the reality that you cannot, uh, do it yourself. That sounds obvious, but like you can't even be trusted as like necessarily the head of all aspects of the business. Um, you have to have to find people that you can heavily rely on to, take things into their own hands that you can trust and that can take charge of different tasks or roles. Um, because everything that happens on the ground is, you know, the key to success. That's, that's where the operation is actually going down. So, you know, if you don't have a, for me, like fixing and flipping, if I don't have someone super trusted to handle all my real estate needs or my construction needs or my day to day tasks, um, like the whole thing would fall apart. And so just uh, be super, you know, real with yourself up front to know that even if, you know, you're a good manager and things like that, that's great. But you will have to find people to not just delegate to, but to almost outright trust with a lot of things and, you know, to possibly make decisions on your behalf on things that are happening on a day to day basis. Yeah, Uh, I think. You know, you've mentioned this earlier in the podcast as well, but even now that the people that you work with are very important. And this is what we refer to, you know, as your team. Uh, Who do you think are the key people that you need in a team before you decide to invest out of state? Like who, if I was to go and say, hey, I'm going to invest, let's say in Ohio, um, who should I connect with first um, and have those, you know, connections before I I consider, you know, purchasing a property? Yeah, I think it depends on your investment strategy. But for me, um, we do a lot of fix and flip properties. So there's always, you know, a renovation element to it, a resale, a purchase on the acquisition side, there's a lot of different steps to each deal. So for me, it's just important to find someone to kind of handle each step. Um, So what my team looks like, I have three key team members. And um, those are my real estate agent. So she handles everything for me from like day a renovation finishes through end of deal. So she takes over from like getting photos, doing staging, setting up 
the listing, showings, open houses, offers, like everything. And then all the way through, once we get an accepted contract, um, like almost babysitting the escrow to make sure that the buyer's on track, the lender is, you know, ready to fund on the day of closing, all this stuff, taking care of all the paperwork. I am extremely hands-off in that entire process. So um, pretty much delegate all of that to her. Um, my second key team member would be my contractor. Um, he not only manages like the crews that are actually on the ground doing the work, um, but he actually also oversees all of the projects. So things like what materials are needed, when, on what job site, um, where we're at, you know, if we're filing permits, like when do we need inspections and, um, timeline of completion for projects so we can keep things in order. So everything from like the day to day that goes on at the job site, as well as the more bigger picture overview of all of the job oversight and management, um, is what he handles. And then my third key team member is my project manager. Uh, slash like boots on the ground guy. And he pretty much is the go-to for all tasks. Anything that comes up on a day-to-day, -day, whether it be picking up material orders, um, switching out keys or setting up lock boxes, like, you know, if anybody needs to get let into a property or any meetings need to be taken, if we're meeting with a new seller or taking a video of a new property that we're looking to purchase, any sort of task that needs someone physically there, I'm not there to do, gets delegated over to him and he handles all of that stuff. So between those three people, we have a pretty good amount of like the day-to-day on-the-ground operations covered. And I just kind of manage them and oversee everything, uh, you know, from long distance. Yeah. It sounds like you have things mostly figured out, but I imagine it took some time to, you know, have these key players in place. Uh, so I want to talk about each of them, right? So your real estate agent, could you talk about, you know, how you found your real estate agent, but also from the lens of like, as a new investor, if I want to find a real estate agent in a different state that I want to invest in, like, what are some things I should look out for? Uh, and how do, how should I go about finding someone I can trust? Yeah, so um, I'll give a couple like overview points that apply to all team members that you're looking for. But a couple things that I've found for success. One would be um, pick people that can grow with you. So, you know, I kind of used this strategy when I was finding everybody that I now work with and is on my team. I wasn't necessarily looking for the best, most experienced contractor out there who has all the business and is extremely busy. Um, I wanted somebody who I could bring value to as well and was going to appreciate, you know, what I brought to the table because being an out-of-state investor, you do need more attention from all of these people than you know, their average client. Like they're gonna have to do FaceTime calls with you and give you check-ins all the time because you can't just go over and see what's happening. And so, you know, you kind of require extra attention. So you want to make sure that you're also able to bring them value, you know, that they'll want to service your needs. So um, with the real estate agent, with a contractor, anyone like 
I found a real estate agent that, you know, I, I said, Hey, we're going to do this, this deal together and, and see how it goes. But I just want you to know if it goes well, like I'm going to give you all my listings, every single house we flip, it's yours. You know, you don't have to work for it. So, I mean, that's great, you know, motivation to do a good job and make sure that things are taken care of because there's plenty more to come. Um, and same with my contractor. Like when we first met, he was kind of doing, you know, kitchens here and there and roofing jobs here and there, but he really wanted to manage a full project renovation. And so it was the same thing. Like, Hey, I'm going to give you this job and it's going to be a full reno. You can manage the whole thing. And if things go well, you know, I'll give you two, three and four and five, and we'll keep working together and you can manage every single one of my jobs, the whole thing, you know? And so it was people that were good at what they did. Like we built a good relationship and we started slow to make sure that it worked, but also someone that, you know, wasn't already at the top of their game to where I couldn't really bring any value to them and we couldn't grow together. Um, so that's been probably like one of the key things I would say in choosing my team and making sure that there are people that will kind of stick with you longer term is people who want to grow with you. Yeah, I think that that was really valuable, especially to me. Like that's that's not something I really thought about before. You know, when I'm looking, reaching out to folks in a different state, I'm usually looking for people who have that experience and I in in my mind I guess uh whether it was valid or not I thought okay if they have this much experience under their belt then I should be able to trust them with the project but I think what you said there uh about providing value to the other party that that's that's uh something I hadn't considered and I feel like that's so key in developing a long-term and a strong relationship between you and the other partner, you know, because we are looking to invest long term and we want someone who we can count on for multiple projects. So uh, I, I think, you know, I'm going to take take your uh, tip and, you know, look for people like that. Um, is it so when you find these people uh, or when you initially found them, were there a series of questions or anything else that you asked them to weed out uh, folks that you didn't want to work with or catch any red flags? Were there people you worked with that you didn't like working with and you no longer continued working with them? Uh, could you talk to us about you know that process? I hope you're enjoying the episode so far, and if you are, I would really appreciate it if you could give me a five-star rating on whichever platform you're listening to me on. It would help get the podcast in front of more people so that they can also get value out of it. Thank you so much. Now let's get back to the show. Sure. Yeah, definitely keep in mind when you're building your team that it is a process. Um, mm -hmm. Not one person that I worked with on day one on my first flip is with me today. So, okay. I mean, it's been a rotation, you know, you try mm -hmm. someone and maybe they do good on one deal, but the second one, you know, that's the end of the relationship. And so you just have to be open. I would say always give people just like a chance. If you, if you mm -hmm. see some good signs, you guys connect well and work well together, give them a chance, but don't give them your whole business. Just right. start with one deal, you know, see how it works out, go to number two. And, you know, if you've done a couple together and things are going really well, then maybe then you can really expand to kind of permanent working together. But, um, but yeah, the couple of things I would say that were key for me is 
uh, communication was number one. It's always going to be the biggest number one for investing out of state. Um, like I said before, you just, you have to find people that are more willing than the average person to commute, to overly communicate with you because you need it. You, you know, you can't go look at anything on your own. I mean, unless you fly out there, but how often does that happen? So you need people who are willing to answer your texts and calls and FaceTimes and all these things every day and happily, not like it's such a a burden, you know, because then you don't even feel like you want to talk to these people and, and it's your team, you know, you guys are working together, you benefit one another. And so you, you want that to be like a good, healthy relationship. So um, I think that was the biggest thing that I always looked for is just communication. If people were answered my calls, answered my text, texts right away, um, you know, maybe even gave me more information than I was looking for um, or were overly willing to, to be helpful and accommodating. Um, that was like the number one thing I looked for as a sign of, okay, let's, let's try out one job together. Um, but I mean, I think just some experience level, you know, you can kind of gauge from when you're talking to them, if they really don't know what they're talking about, or, you know, if it's a realtor that this is their very first listing, like, I'm not saying go choose someone like that, who's never done it before. And and you're like their, you know, test trial run, but um, I'm just also saying they don't have to be like the number one most sought after person in their field in the area. So, so yeah, I mean, definitely some, some basic questions about like, how many deals have you done or how many houses you have you renovated, you know, whatever the, the set questions are for their field, just to kind of gauge their experience and that they talk knowledgeably on their field. But, um, most important was the communication. Yeah. Cool. Uh, when we underwrite deals for a fix and flip, usually you have your holding costs kind of you know calculated as part of the underwriting process and one of my biggest fears has been that i always underestimate how long it takes to complete a job Uh, and i've also heard so many horror stories of you know contractors just walking off or contractors not finishing on time so i was wondering if you had tips around that like when you make a deal with your contractor do you actually write a contract with them saying hey like this job it needs to be done in this amount of time and if not then you know maybe the price goes down uh for the job right uh like how do you protect yourself from projects running over the timeline that you had originally estimated Yeah, I think it's a great idea to do that um, when you're kind of in that trial period with people and you may not know exactly what to expect and if they are trustworthy. Mm -hmm. Um, Personally, I don't do that with my team right now because we have built up that trust and relationship and I already know, you know, that they are committed to the jobs and that they're not going to walk away. And I know the timeline um, for us almost everything we do finishes between zero and 90 days from purchase. So they're quick renovations. The team is on it. They're like, they start on day one Mm -hmm. and I'm super confident in that. But um, yeah, the first couple deals, I would say it is a good idea to put it in your contract. Um, I, I mean, I still sign a contract every time that outlines our payment schedule and everything like that. Um, 
everything that's going to be done on the job site is on the invoice. So that way, if there's ever any questions later, like, hey, are we going to, you know, install new cabinets or paint the cabinets? It's back on the invoice and we, you know, we already agreed to everything. But the timeline, yeah, it's, it's a good idea when you're starting, um, you know, give them whatever you feel is like your maximum like if it goes over this, this is going to be a disaster right. timeline, um, which is probably somewhere in like the four to six month range, depending mm -hmm. on the size of the rehab. Right. It really shouldn't take, unless it's a new build, I mean, it shouldn't take longer than that. Mm -hmm. So I would give them a, a window within there to finish the job. Um, and I mean, even now, like with, with my contractor, I know he's going to finish the job, but I still have a payment schedule for him. We don't just give him all the money up front. So right. make a payment schedule where they only get such and such up front, maybe just enough to cover like the materials or whatnot that they're purchasing for the job. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, don't make your payments until they're halfway done and 75% of the way done and then all the way done. So that way, you know, they're motivated to actually finish the job. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Um, I think the other question I had was you mentioned a property uh, project manager, right? And this was not someone I had considered that I needed. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the role of the project manager uh, and at what point someone would consider working with a project manager or hiring a project manager on their team? Sure. Um, I would say it just depends on how much you're able to offload onto other team members about whether or not you'd need someone like this. Um, but for me, it was essential like day one. Um, I, I always felt like I needed someone in this role from the beginning. And the, the role, call a project manager, whatever you want, but it's essentially someone who is just on the ground and kind of on call to do any sort of task that might come up mm -hmm. on the day to day. It could be really simple things like, you know, some states you have to go in person to turn on your utilities. You know, it could be something like that. You just need a person to go do something that has to be done in person, you yeah. know? Um, or it could be something that's a lot more, you know, sort of skilled, I guess, in the sense of like, Another thing he handles for me is if we're ever going to like make an offer on a new deal, he's the one I send out to go walk the property, mm -hmm. take some videos, like look at the foundation, the roof, like tell me if any of these things are a problem or, right. are, you know, are fine and we don't have to spend reno budget on that. So I also trust his opinion, you know, on some more relevant tasks as well that are super important to, you know, very key steps in the process. But yeah. at the same time, he also just does like down to the basics of just showing up places and doing tasks on the day to day. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, you mentioned that you, you know, you trust him to give you, I guess, maybe feedback about the property, right? Uh, before you purchase, uh, was there a particular set of skills or like the, the term project manager is just very vague. So I, I wouldn't even know what kind of person that I'm looking out for, right? So was there a particular t uh, set of skills that you were looking for? How did you even market this, that you're looking for a project manager? How did you get connected with this person? Um, I'm just curious because I, I just have no idea. Yeah. 
Um, I think probably the best person for this role is somebody who is looking to learn about fixing and flipping or buying and holding or whatever you're mm -hmm. using them for. Um, they're looking to learn and get involved, but they aren't necessarily at the stage yet where they're doing it fully on their own. So this is a great role for somebody who um, wants to be on the job site every day, wants to get an inside scoop as to what's going on, what steps you take through the entire process, because they're handling a good majority of those steps. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's the best person to put in this role. And yeah, they, you know, they need to have some sort of knowledge, but a lot of the things you can kind of teach them as you go. Um, I know I've taught my project manager a lot just about what to look for in, in houses and, you know, how to use different, you know, softwares that we might use for, you know, picking up materials or whatever it is. Um, you can kind of teach as you go, but, um, but yeah, we, we met super randomly, honestly, we met, uh, through Facebook, um, he was looking to get started and do some wholesale deals. And he had posted a deal that he had available in a Facebook group I was following. And so we connected over that. Um, I ended up buying that deal from him. That was his first deal and just got to know each other, you know, really well and see how communication was and all of that through that wholesale deal. Um, and he had mentioned to me a couple of times it was his first deal. He was looking to learn, looking to get involved. So it was just, uh, you know, asking him after we had done one together, if this is an opportunity he would be interested in just, you know, part-time work kind of here and there as tasks come up. Um, yeah. and yeah, he was interested. So, you know, relationships can form like super organically that you weren't even expecting. Um, so just be open to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I think I want to touch a little bit on your acquisition process as well. You mentioned that your renos take anywhere from, you know, like I think you said 30 to 90 days or something like that, right? Is this because you specifically look for projects that are maybe uh, lighter in renovation needs and rehab needs? Or is it just because you have a team that's fully dedicated to your projects and you know you can trust them and they just are efficient and then they get it done tell me a little bit about you know when you're purchasing a property like how do you make sure it's within that time frame yeah um i would say it's more the second option than the first um we do yeah. have a just again very good relationship with the contractor and his crew and i know when we assign them a job like they'll be there every single day with like five people on site mm -hmm. all the time just hustling away to get the job done so um that's definitely probably the biggest part of it uh we don't just buy you know cosmetic fixers some of them mm -hmm. are and those projects might be done in like 30 days um but a pretty good amount of our jobs are like the renovation is more than the purchase price. So very significant, you know, like $50,000 purchase price with like a $90,000 rehab. So big renovations for sure. Um, and it's just more about having the right team there to execute. Yeah. Do you, uh, I guess, how do you find properties that you want to purchase? Are these, 
mostly on market, off market. You mentioned you got bought one from a wholesaler. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, almost exclusively off market for our purchases. Um, about 50% of the deals I buy come from uh, some sort of like direct source to the seller or the contract of the deal. So whether that be an agent or a wholesaler that brings me the deal um, or even something that we, we have the direct connection with the, the seller, you know, from marketing channels. So that category kind of lumps up like 50% of what we buy all off market. Um, and then the other 50% come from buying foreclosures um, where, you know, they're being auctioned off from the bank uh, due to, you know, the sellers having, you know, missed payments or, or just not being caught up on their loans. And so we go to the auctions every single week and pick up about 50% of our deals from there as well. Okay. Uh, my understanding with auctions is that, um, I guess, do you know beforehand, like which properties are being auctioned off or do you just show up and then you just find out there and then like which properties are being auctioned? Yeah, you know, beforehand, um, you have to do your own like research and due diligence because every single county handles them differently, mm -hmm. um, across the United States. But, um, I don't think I've heard of one yet where you can't get access I to see. the properties ahead of time. Sometimes it's like very easily accessible where they just give you the addresses. Um, other times, you know, they may only give you like the legal description of the property, you know, or like the foreclosure court case information that was filed. So, uh, you know, one of the counties that we buy from majority is like that where you know they don't just they they give you a way to get the information but they don't just outright give it to you you have to spend the time ahead of time to really come through like find the addresses find out mm -hmm. if they're properties that you even want or are interested in yeah. um and so yeah you have to do a lot of like do due diligence on it i see so when you show up to the auction you have a good idea of these are the properties for auction today and you underwrite them beforehand so you know what you know your max offer would be right yes correct okay and then uh right now you're mostly just flipping and uh fixing and flipping uh but you haven't held any properties yet so you don't work with like a property manager for example for any of your properties because i assume you don't hold any yet yeah, um, I've only held one so far as a rental, um, which I self-managed and I probably would self-manage until I had like a really significant size portfolio. Um, so there's yeah. a lot of systems and softwares out there that you can use to like really um, kind of make everything digital and just like automated and, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily take a ton of your time. and just personally, I would probably hire a person almost like my task project manager guy to just like oversee the mm -hmm. system and software that might be set up to manage the tenants, manage rents and stuff. Like, I feel like I'd hire someone to just oversee the self drawn up system before I would go out and hire yeah. a property manager that that's all that they do. 
Um, I don't think it's a bad idea at all. It's, it's completely hands off. You don't even have to think about anything management. You just collect rent. So that's really nice. Um, but they do take, you know, a pretty decent chunk and sometimes it can make it a lot harder to, you know, make the deal work. So, yeah, that, that is why I'm asking is because I am looking out of state and, you know, I don't know what rates are reasonable, but you know, the rates that most property managers charge, uh, are quite significant, you know, and so when you it, it makes it harder to make the deal cash flow. Um, so I guess that that's why I bring it up is in my mind, it's always, hey, should I self manage, but I'm so far away? Or should I get a property manager, I don't have to worry about as much. Um, but uh, talking to you, it sounds like maybe I can start off with self managing, as long as I have, you know, a good contractor, uh, in the area and someone else I can trust to, you know, uh, oversee some of these things. So it, it sounds like I need someone like your project manager rather than a property management company. Um, cool. Yeah. Um, for people who, you know, listen to this podcast and they're inspired and they want to get started in real estate investing, do you have advice for them on, uh, how they can get started? Yeah, I mean, definitely, I think like any sort of action that you can take instead of just, you know, digesting a bunch of books, podcasts, knowledge, that's all really good. But until you actually take the action, do your first deal and learn it hands on, um, there's so much that you could read or, or hear, but it's just going to go over your head until you actually experience it firsthand. So I would encourage people to just find some sort of way to take action. Um, it, it maybe doesn't even have to be like doing your first deal. It could just be like recognizing that you don't know anything about construction, but you want to flip houses. So mm -hmm. maybe you need to go shadow a contractor, you know, or ask if, you know, meet some people that are, are local to your market and looking to, you know, help or benefit each other. And maybe you can offer them something and and exchange, you know, you can go walk jobs with them as they write up invoices or whatever and like learn pricing and all these things. So it doesn't necessarily have to be doing your first deal as, as amazing as that experience is. Um, could just be working for somebody or going tagging along and, you know, just anything that you can actually be present to do though and take action on learning instead of just reading about it or hearing about it. Um, I just, I found it, it sticks a lot better and you, know, you, you really can remember those lessons that you'll learn forever. Yeah. I like asking this of all my guests because I, I think it's really inspiring hearing everyone's answers, but I'd like to know what your ultimate goals are, like what you want to do with your real estate journey and your portfolio where you eventually want to end up and maybe talk about your short-term goals. Like I know you mentioned you want to do some more uh, buy and holds, but like, you know, uh, maybe you have others to add, but like, what is it that you want to accomplish in 2023? Um, so I, I want to hear both. Sure. Yeah, 2023, um, definitely just keeping the, the flipping volume strong. Um, if we can buy at least two deals a month to flip, um, maybe three some months or all months, that'd be amazing uh, to, re to really boost it. But if we can buy at least two deals a month, uh, just single family, you know, fixer uppers, 
that's kind of my goal uh, to keep the the flipping volume strong. And then, yeah, like you said, um, the longer term goal and sort of comes into 2023 as well is uh, being more passive. So I love the model of doing renovations, um, just being able to, you know, force value on on a property and make it worth even more than, you know, you might've thought. And so I don't necessarily want to step away from that um, part of it, but just do do more like renovations of buildings or like multiple units at once so that we can force value onto a building and then, you know, use that as leverage once, it, once it's done instead of just reselling it, uh, use it as leverage to do a cash out refi and, and hold on to the building you know, longer term. Um, I think there's a ton of value to be created in doing that and also utilizing like some tax strategies out there, like the 1031 exchange, um, you know, force appreciation, hold a building for a couple of years and then exchange it and take all that money tax-free into something bigger and better. So I think kind of long-term speaking, um, yeah, it's going to be more on the buy and hold side and and using some of those different tax strategies to really, um, you know, keep as much of the, the profits and wealth within and just continue to trade up and up and, and get bigger with the deals. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really inspiring, especially to me. Uh, for people who want to follow you on social media, follow your journey, or they want to reach out to you, uh, what is the best way of doing that? Where can they find you? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram. Um, I'm at Dom Flips Nola, and I try to answer you know questions on there if they come through. So if there's anything I can help, shoot me a message or comment or something, and I'll try to reach back out. Yeah, awesome. And if people want to connect with me, they can find me on Instagram or YouTube at ISOGotThis. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I learned a lot. I hope our audience does as well. And I'm excited to follow the rest of your journey. Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. All right, that is the end of today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I would really appreciate it if you could take a moment to give me a five-star rating on whichever platform you're listening to me on. It would really help my mission of teaching more people about real estate investing. Thank you, and I'll see you in the next one.